This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 499 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Brooke Ames. Now, Brooke has many layers to her story. One is the perspective she has coming from the corporate world into the fire service and seeing some of the challenges when it comes to leadership and ownership and that kind of thing. Another journey is her weight journey. She started off very overweight in the volunteer fire service, again, took ownership of her weight and ended up becoming a high-level athlete and a full-time firefighter. So there are so many elements that are so important in this conversation. Before we get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of next episode, 500 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Brooke Ames. Enjoy. Brooke, I want to say 
Firstly, thank you for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Um, and also thank you to Aaron Heller for, you know, making the suggestion. But I'm fully aware of the journey that you've come with your fitness journey. But obviously, there's so much more depth to what we're going to discuss today. But yeah, so welcome to the show today. All right. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I've admired your podcast and many of the uh, people that you've hosted on here have some incredible stories. So I feel very humbled and quite frankly, very grateful that you, I'm I'm nobody from nowhere and I appreciate that you want to talk to me. (laughs) So the first question I, I always ask everyone is where on planet earth are we finding you today? So right now I am sitting in my bedroom on my farm in Wyota, Wisconsin. I assume you've never heard of Wyota population right around 204. I haven't got a, a pin in my map of the world map for that particular town. I've got to be honest. No. <laughs> it is in Lafayette County. And I will kind of give you a little geographic lesson here. Um, the southern border of Wisconsin touches the northern border of Illinois. I could probably lean over and spit into Illinois from where I'm standing. So (laughs) we're right on the southern border, kind of uh, east central area, Lafayette County. Um, The capital, Madison, is north of me by about an hour and a half. And I am about an hour east of the Mississippi River. Beautiful. Yeah, because we actually had a, not not a blip. I, I sat down and I realized, oh, we hadn't actually confirmed time zones because people that live right on those barriers it's very easy to mess up. So you guys are actually central. Yes, it's central time. Beautiful. All right. Well, then I love to start chronologically. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. I was born in Dubuque, Iowa, which is just across the border, uh, Mississippi River town. I lived there my entire life until I went to college in Platteville, Wisconsin, which was only about 30 minutes away. I'm an only child, grew up on the north side of Dubuque, a working class family. Mom is a secretary, dad is a laborer, and my grandfather lived with us until he passed away when I was 12 years old. So a lot of my really early years I had spent with him. Um, He was a World War II veteran, uh, POW and uh, amputee. So he actually, um, I, I learned a lot about how people can do things regardless of what their, I don't want to say the word handicap, but what their um, limitations, what their perceived limitations might be. Um, He lost his right arm in World War II. And um, that was his, he was, you know, right-hand dominant. So he had to relearn how to write and do literally everything. But he, (laughs) he, he was an outdoorsman, hunter, fisher, and did all of that with an adaptation. So I think that that's probably, you know, unknowingly was laying a path for me. So I was fortunate to grow up that way. Beautiful. Now with, with that generation, you know, sadly there's not many of them to talk to these days. Um, Did you ever now being in the fire service and understanding, you know, the impact of mental health retroactively, did you ever see any kind of ripple effect of not only being, not only serving, but being a POW? Oh, absolutely. Um, I know that, you know, the the great holiday that we just had, 4th of July, was always kind of a difficult and isolating time for him. Um, You know, then even uh, PTSD was not a diagnosis that was um, readily available 
but I, I always remember him isolating himself during that time. And, you know, looking back now, I'm sure that the, the ballistics going off were, you know, indicative of him going back to a, a time in his life that was very frightening. Um, so I think that that's, I think, I think it's, we're fortunate now that we, we understand more about it and we're more aware because of how, how much that can affect people down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, when, you know, with so many people, especially in our profession, you know, more often than not, ironically, there's an element of challenge or trauma early in life. And what's an interesting parallel, I think that's very, very rarely discussed is when it comes to weight gain, that that's also, you know, to me, I think there's a mental health element of, you know, whether it's a food addiction, whether it's in some cases, even trauma, people don't want to be attractive. Maybe they've been, you know, um, abused when they were younger. And, and it's actually a coping mechanism of being um, you know, less desirable to the same or opposite sex so that you're not a target for predators. So there's all these kind of layers of, of the mental side. We're going to talk obviously about, you know, your initial weight gain. When you look back retroactively, were there any elements of your childhood that you now would consider traumatic or, or were you very fortunate and had a good childhood? Um, I think I had probably what what would be described as difficult, but I always knew that I was loved. I don't, I, I didn't have the abuse aspect by any far cry. That wasn't what I, I don't think that nothing abusive would have contributed to my weight gain. I was always a heavy child. If you're talking about the things that, um, that contributed, it, it was from an early age growing up in a household that was, you know, working class and two adults that are out of the home. And so like suppers were convenience and also culturally the Midwest, like we're people, whether you call it hot dish or casserole, that is, that is like a staple food as a meat and potatoes casserole. So meat, potatoes, and some sort of like cream of soup on top of it um, is, is pretty much what ends up going on. And that's a lot of, you know, that that's a regular thing here. So I don't, it was never a, um, a very fast weight gain. It was, this was how, how I grew up and, and, you know, food was used in my house as like a comfort mechanism and, um, really kind of just the way that we communicated really. I mean, you celebrate, so you, you eat some, you know, you have a, a fancy dinner, you go out to eat or have dessert. Um, people are coming over. We need to have a big meal. We need to, you know, have appetizers and things like that. Um, I don't know that childhood trauma would have contributed to that. Not to say that I had the perfect childhood. Um, I didn't come from privilege. It's, I, I, we'd, we're not a wealthy family. So, I mean, there, there are instances of it's like, well, you know, the, the least expensive thing is what we're going to be eating for dinner. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it was, I, I grew up, I always knew that I was loved, um, whether or not it was perfect parenting or anything like that is who's to say I, I know i'm not always the perfect parent either um but i know that in my household that i was loved and um that there were you know we had a, a good support network even you know like my grandfather living with us that was always somebody that was there for me too so um so nothing that's like traumatically contributed to my weight gain i don't think that lurks in my past <laughs> though i will say i'm a huge advocate for um normalizing mental wellness instead of calling it mental health. So um, 
I speak to a therapist regularly. I think I think all of us should. I, I don't know that anything bad comes from that. And I know that there's some underlying things that that happen in all of our ch- childhoods that um, we work through, and that way we're not repeating past traumas. So yeah, no, it's an interesting perspective, and I think there are you know many many influences that contribute to you know less than perfect health as we get older. And, and, and one of the things I talk about, there's so much so much kind of fat shaming from one camp like oh why don't they just stop eating and exercise you know and everything but then there's the other side where you know there's kind of you know victim mentality but in the middle is also the environment so yes there's there's ownership absolutely each one of us has to you know put in the work to to regain our health but it's about the environment and if the cheapest food of when you were young was the shit food in the store then that's what people are going to lean into if we had an environment i'm sorry go on well, I, my husband and I were talking about this, um, as far as like my daughter, how she treats food and makes, you know, good choices as far as eating. Um, I have a nine-year-old. She's, uh, she's pretty incredible, but, um, we were talking about it just the other day and she's, she's very, very healthy weight and everything. Um, and she, I, I see her like look at labels and I know that's because I look at labels. Um, and we, my husband and I were having a discussion about like, hey, you know, we're doing something right. <laughs> um, we're not repeating. We're, we're breaking a cycle is really what we, we've described it as. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I remember there was always little Debbie and potato chips in my household. Always. You could always find them there. But fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, those those weren't those were a luxury and they, they just didn't exist. Well, let me ask you this. So geographically, Wisconsin, that area like holistically organically you know what what kind of crops grow well in that part of the US uh corn wheat not really wheat but like rye wheat or you know rye is winter winter crop that happens here soybeans um you know i plant a garden every year the soil here is is very fertile so you can make just about anything grow and that's my um, point that's that's possible yeah. yeah. So that's what kills me is that the processed crap that came from a factory was what was most available, sadly, because a lot of this country has become, you know, industrialized farming and versus, you know, this fertile state in the middle of the US, you should be able to grow everything for a fraction of the cost of processed shit. So that's the environment side. Yes, there's ownership, but right now we have an environment that sets people up for failure. And I think that if we could go back to you know, the local farms, whether it's whether you eat meat or not, you know, whether you, you know, grow in local vegetables, we support the local farms, then I think that that in itself would be a huge step towards, you know, the next generation not, you know, having to struggle with their weight, because they're not gonna, you know, go to the dollar store and buy the the processed crap, because that's all they can afford. Right, that's, that's so important. And I mean, we, I'm fortunate where I'm at now, I grew up in the middle of the city of Dubuque. So a little bit different from where I'm at now. But we own 25 acres. And, you know, we raise we raise sheep, chickens, and we've got a couple of horses, we buy our beef, we'll buy a, a side of beef from our neighbors down the road. Um, it's most of what we're eating is coming or my husband and I both hunt, you know, we get lots of venison most of what we're eating is coming from right here and is, isn't processed or, you know, coming from a box. So I'm fortunate now to be making those choices and to have the availability. But if you're living in an urban area, unless you have some sort of, you know, 
community garden or you have some sort of co-op that you're able to get that, your, your options are a little bit more limited. There are farmers markets I know that are pretty prevalent in this area because like I said, the, the soil here is very, you can make about anything grow. So we have a lot of like niche farmers too. Yeah. And I think that's it. You know, I mean, with the hunting, of course, there's got to be so many certain things in place to be able to hunt and make it, you know, affordable. Otherwise it ends up being more, you know, buying all this equipment and, you know, paying for the trip out there and paying for the meat to be brought back. And, you know, it can end up being, being more, but you said, you've got the people that are in the country that can literally, you know, create their own food. And then, you know, that's where local farms come in. I think the people that are in the city supply them by the farms all around them, but don't ship it from Mexico or, you know, overseas when we have this huge, huge fertile country that we can grow everything on, you know, from the tropical South to the, you know, potato North. You know, and I think that a lot of that comes to comes to pass by the society of which we've become, which is instant gratification society, right? If you want fish tacos and you need limes and they don't grow, you know, here, you're you're importing them, you know, from wherever to get them, right? Because you want fish tacos. <laughs> and um, we're just, we don't, we're not locavores anymore. Um, I read a really interesting book by Barbara Kingsolver. It's called Animal Vegetable Miracle. Basically her and her family decide that they're going to only eat things that came within a, you know, five mile radius of where they were living in Tennessee at the time. Um, Pretty interesting book, like whether you have that mentality or not of just how they had to adapt things. And, you know, she said it was like heartbreaking when her oldest daughter asked for fresh fruit and it was like February and she was like, well, we committed to this project, you know, and, you know, having to deny your child, you know, like, well, you, you know, you can, you can go out and get it, but we're, you know, this is what, what we, we committed to, um, I think is, is really interesting. Um, just the perspective of like, Hey, you can actually live well <laughs> and eat well if you're not, you know, having all of the consumer qualities of, even like the logistics of trucking, you know, think of, think of the environmental impact. It's great if you're able to eat local. I mean, I'm not super concerned about that. I'll be perfectly honest. I think everybody has their, their things that they, you know, worry about and are concerned with. And for me, that's, I think that um, our environment kind of heals itself when it needs to, and we go in cycles, but what a wonderful thing if you're not having all the emissions of having to truck food all across country. Yeah, and I think it's not it's not absolute as well. When you when you talk about that, for example, there'll always be oh, but what about? It's like, and the, the what about is always kind of a very very small piece of the pie. So, yeah, import limes. That's fine. Just grow all the other stuff in this country. The things sure. that will grow seasonally, grow that. And then if you want, you know, star fruit or whatever it is, then yeah, ship those in. But you still absolutely shaved down not only as you said the environmental impact and just the complete waste of manpower that people have to sit in a truck and drive you know, thousands of miles to bring your stuff that you literally could have grown in the farm in your town that's you know that's the, the the waste i think and then you know that way if you want frozen strawberries or you know imported imported uh luxuries then absolutely it doesn't have to be complete absolute but yeah there's just so much so much waste and i agree with you it's because it's convenient and we as a nation that's where the ownership needs to come we need a demand that we you know restore the power to our local areas rather than letting two or three you know international companies have control of our food sources and we saw how that went wrong this last year yeah absolutely 
Right. Well, with your journey after that big tangent, um, when you were young, what about um, sports? Did you enjoy playing sports back then? You know, I was always actually fairly active, but I was I was always bigger, always bigger. I was I think from, you know, second grade onward, I was I weighed over 100 pounds. I was I was always obese. Um, and I think that some of it came from like ignorance. I, I remember when my doctor had said, and I mean, I was young when this happened, that I had to go on a diet. You know, the doctor was very concerned I had to go on a diet. And my mom was just like, you know, all up in arms. And we we go to this pretzel stand afterwards, you know, like the big doughy pretzels. Um, and because I was on a diet, I couldn't have the pretzel that had the cream cheese on it. I could only just have the plain pretzel. Like, I, I, I think that generationally we're learning more, right? I'm actively trying to break a cycle of that. And I do think that some of it was taught. You know, we talk about the, the food pyramid and that was like the end all be all. Like the food pyramid is out there and saying 12 to 14 servings of grains. Well, I can tell you right now that I don't eat 12 to 13 servings of grains by any far cry at all. And um, the serving sizes that, you know, what, what we eat, what I think that's also another fun thing. Um, what we eat generally or what we perceive to be a serving is not. <laughs> Coming from England, I can attest. I, I was like, "Oh, is this is this a tray that you're going to bring the plates on?" Like, no, that's your plate. Like, are you yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. It's, it's frightening. Portion control is just absolutely insane. Um, and that was a big, big part of when I had to get like serious and honest about my own nutrition. Um, I probably did have you know an undiagnosed or self-diagnosed, whatever you want to say eating disorder in that I would binge eat. Like I would think, I would think I was doing myself a service by being like, well, I'm going to be good all day and not eat anything. And then for dinner time, I would just, it was, it was a free for all. And I was, you know, I wondered why I was going backwards. Well, the body cannot process that many calories at one time. So why do you think I was sluggish all day, had no energy, didn't, didn't want to exercise or move about while I was depleted. And then I would get this bolus of food, um, which, you know, as, as much as we, we like to say that we're evolved, our bodies and our biochemistry is, is not evolved. We might've evolved in the fact that we are no longer a hunter gatherer society, but our bodies themselves are still on hunter gatherer time, so to say. Um, our bodies are not meant to process the three meals a day that industrialization has now sent us to. Yeah, well, it's a double double pronged attack as well on the body because not only, as you said, are we not hunting or gathering, both of which expends a lot of calories and puts you know stress on bones and challenges muscle, but then we have these you know hyper refined carbs. You know, so now not not only is there that, that slow burn, there's not that slow burn of slowly digesting whole foods so we're shooting you know basically shooting sugar crack into our veins while simultaneously sitting in an office space for you know eight ten hours a day so and we're wondering why you know we have this this i mean 70 percent of our country right now is obese or overweight that's horrendous and you know shame on every person who's called themselves a leader in the last few decades for tolerating the fact that their country has got sicker and sicker and sicker yet you know farms pharmaceutical companies are getting richer and richer and richer industrial farms 
and I'm sorry, I kind of went down my, again, another <laughs> tangent there, but as far as sports and growing up, you know, I played softball. I, I was a cheerleader. I did, you know, I was active, but there was never, never enough to like offset what I was consuming. Um, I, I raced cars when I was in junior high and high school, which is always kind of like people become fascinated with that. Um, that was, you know, I, I grew up in a household that, you know, my dad worked on cars and my grandfather restored antique cars um, and raced stock cars. So you talk about, you know, it being in your blood, like fire services in some people's blood. Um, I was just, I wanted to do it. That's all. That's what I wanted to do. Um, so I did that. That was, you know, kind of what took up my Friday, Saturday and Sunday nights when I was my my very formative years which is good because it kept me out of trouble <laughs> um i aside from that though like i you know i was never i was never considered i would never consider myself athletic um and i was never i was always kind of middle of the road when i did play sports now did you, you know, as we see with with some kids that were heavier when they were younger did you experience any bullying or cruelty at that point, or did you happen to be around kind kids? Oh, no, kids are not kind. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put that out there because there are some really beautiful souls out there, but there are some complete assholes too. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I was bullied for for sure. But, um, I'm sure that that's one of the things that I'm still working through um, is some of the bullying and some of the uh, the latent, I don't want to say PTSD, but when, when you do get teased about something, it can be, and you have that feeling of like, you know, where it grips your soul. I want to, I want to say, like, I feel myself really going back in time to a time where that was only what happened and the only way that I was treated. Um, But, you know, now I will say like, you know, the mental and, you know, spiritual transformation is nice physical transformation is kind of like a big middle finger to people that that did bully so um yeah brilliant all right well then the career path so we're going to talk about the fire service when you were at school age was was the fire service something you'd always thought about or did you have something else in mind at first i was very much a late bloomer to the fire service so fire service did not come about until i was about 25 years of age um Prior to that, I thought that I was going to race NASCAR. And then it was like, I, I started off as pre-med. I wanted to help people um, in college and really realized, you know, I'm doing the math. I paid my way through college. Um, like I said, my, my family didn't, I don't, I don't come from privilege. So I took out student loans and I'm sitting there doing the math. And I know that I cannot make another four years added onto loan payments. So I kind of pivoted my, what I was doing. I switched to animal science because I had become interested in farming. Um, I was milking cows at the time and, you know, dairy science was my emphasis. So I switched and I graduated with my degree in animal science with a dairy emphasis. Um, didn't really put that to use, became a CNA, um, right directly after I was kind of doing, um, when I had the thought of going into EMS kind of came about um, was was a CNA to like pay some bills that literally I had to, I had to pay bills. And during that time, you know, my husband and I just got married. We bought this farm. So we've got a farm mortgage. I've got student loans. We were then we then had a child. It was like, oh, my goodness. Like I was just I, we were trying to make ends meet. 
my husband at the time was working for Cummins, which diesel manufacturer um, on the emission side. And he said, hey, you know, they're looking for welders right now, knowing that back when Brooke was 14 years old, 15, 16 years old, I had taken um, classes at the community college for welding for when I was racing stock cars, I was building my own roll cages. That was the most expensive part. Um, so he had said, hey, it's paying really well. You'd have full-time employment. You know, we would be able to carpool. So we're reducing our, you know, during that time, gas was expensive. You know, you remember 2008, 2010, fuel was expensive. And we live out in the sticks. So, I mean, it's a 40-minute commute. And so I, I applied and I, I got hired on as a temporary welder for Cummins. And Cummins is really good about like talent management. So they've got like, you know, a matrix and you, you know, all of your, your qualifications and things like that. And basically they'd found that I had a four-year degree and had some experience, you know, with spreadsheet. I was really good at math. Um, and basically somebody kind of like came down to the production line one day on a Friday and was like, you don't do this job anymore. Come report to the office on Monday. I went to the office. Um, I became a data analyst uh, for production, which I then kind of took and started running my own projects on because when I would analyze the data, I would get with the engineers and be like, hey, here's your bottlenecks. And this is what needs, because I had worked on the line, I knew what needed to change, like because I had that firsthand experience. And because I worked on, it was a double-edged sword, because I worked on the line, when we'd go to implement change, instead of an engineer coming down and telling you, the welder, how to do your job, Brooke, who welded next to you for how long, was going to come down and tell you everything that you already knew because you had worked and you knew where the problems were. <laughs> so implementing change became a really fluent thing, um, and I really enjoyed it. We had these cross-functional work teams, um, high energy. It was it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that job, and it came time to apply into the company versus working for the temp agency that was on the outside. So um, when I did get picked up full time by Cummins, uh, I was, it was a um, supplier quality role. So I got picked up in, in the quality department, which I really enjoyed. That was a lot of rapport building. It was a lot of um, metrics as far as looking at where the issues are and what suppliers were your greatest, um, greatest pain point. I mean, I had 106 suppliers and there was only one of me. So I had to develop, you know, a system for which what got my attention because there's only so many hours in a day. And in developing the system of how, you know, I would prioritize this, it got some um, attention from corporate because here was this welder that was welding only a few years ago and is now making these changes that are affecting and, you know, improving some things. And I had then taken a project management role with corporate. If you rewind back to when I was hired or shortly before I was hired, when my husband and I bought our farm out here, the volunteer fire chief had came to him and asked him to join the fire department. Now, the town of Wyota gets about six calls a year. That's not an exaggeration. <laughs> um, and the median age for the fire department on the roster at the time was like 63. This is not, this is an aging community. We live out in the middle of nowhere. It's hard to get newer people to engage because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of call volume, right? So at the time when my husband had said, yeah, that's that's great. They asked me to get into involved with EMS because women were considered auxiliary. 
that was just they they banked them down towards that path and i said well you know this sounds like a lot of fun this is what i want to do i want to fight fires and um you know it was i was kind of they humored me um but it was one of those instances where i wasn't considered on the roster so um but I can tell you that the very first time at a training burn, when I went into a fire and James, I know that we've talked about this and you can attest to this. The first time that I went to, into a fire, that was it. I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything else. That was what I wanted to do. And um, so in knowing that I was never really going to get, um, get to do much with this, volunteer service i went down the road to this the next little town that actually it's it butts right up against our land so they allowed me onto there they were just happy they they were a big training department they liked they didn't get a, you know a whole lot of call volume either but they loved to train um and that's what i wanted as i wanted that experience um in doing my state firefighter exam i had gotten put on this team of these like 20 year old dudes that are you know they this is what they were going to do um, and I realized I sat around and I realized that I was the weakest link. I was the weakest link. And I had made the commitment to myself that that wasn't going to be anymore. So every day I was just going to get a little bit better. And that's kind of where I started with, you know, losing weight and things like that. So while I'm at Cummins, I was, you know, volunteering for my home hometown area here not hometown but um where i was living area but then cummins also has a um it's it's called every employee every community where they actually um they require you to do some sort of community service while you're working for them um so i was allowed to run with the volunteer rescue squad in mineral point where i was working when i was on the clock for cummins which was great so i was getting experience um I, I still had this, this idea that going towards fire, this, that was, that was just it for me. And I went to a conference and Aaron Heller, who I know you've had on and you mentioned before had said that he was there and, um, you know, he sat with me at lunch because I was the big girl and nobody wanted to sit with me at lunch. So God bless him for, for being kind and sitting with me. And, you know, he's talking to me, he's telling me about where he works in New Jersey and everything. He was a, he was an instructor at this conference. And he said, you know, and I'm telling him about how, how I had kind of come to be and that I'd lost, you know, I think at that point I'd lost like 30 pounds. So, I mean, it was not significant by any far cry from what I had to lose. Um, and he said, you know, have you ever thought about doing this for a living? And it was like, no, no, I have not. <laughs> but, but now I am like, do tell me more. Like you guys are getting paid for this. That's awesome. Um, so I started looking at what I needed to do to, to get my certifications in order to start applying for a career department. Um, that's kind of hobbled by the fact of where I live. I knew I didn't want to move off the farm. We have residency requirements for most of our fire department, career fire departments in the area. So my options were limited, but the ones that were around that, um, that were full-time, I started looking at what I needed to do to, uh, to do that. One was to get my EMT license. And the other was to pass the CPAT. I had the fire cert certs and everything at that time. So while I was working for Cummins, I started, uh, well, it became, okay, I need to pass the CPAT. The EMT stuff, that'll come. I can do that. That's not a problem. So I started running. Okay. That was the very first thing. I knew I needed to get some weight off. And now, just, when I just to interrupt, so, so tell me how, uh, 
what weight were you at the, at the highest? So people can get at it. my peak weight, I was 241 pounds and I'm only about five foot two. Okay. So I'm... Because when you say I started running, you know, people in the mind look at you now. Well, that can't have been too hard for Brooke Ames. Well, let's let's think about 241 on the frame. That's, you know, that's that's an incredible step in itself. So I just want to interject with that. So please carry on. So I start running, okay, because cardio, that's what's going to, you know, get get more weight off at that time i'd lost about 30 pounds so now we're at about 210 right um i couldn't make it between the fence posts on my farm but i tell you what every day i vowed just like i wasn't going to be the weakest link every day i was going to run and i was going to run farther than the day before marking with the fence posts right so this was maybe 2015 when this when this all started and I remember on like day four, now, again, like you said, I've, I'm over 200 pounds. I'm, I'm running now and it hurts. It hurts. It sucks. It hurts. My body hurts. My joints hurt. Um, on about day four, I remember I got off work and it was raining and day four, I was sore. I didn't like it. I didn't, my, my feet hurt. My knees hurt. And I almost didn't go because that would have been a very easy spot to quit. Are you going to go run in the rain? Um, and I also remember it was, thank goodness I live out in the middle of nowhere, but I always just prayed that nobody was going to drive by when I was running because no matter what you're wearing, it's, there's nothing. It, I'm, I'm still, you know, I still consider myself a modest person, but I did, I did not want people to see me running. Um, but I went anyways, I went anyways when it was raining and I was crying and the rain's coming down. And that was just a pivotal moment of like, you know, sometimes you just got to do things, whether you want to do them or not, they just got to get done. Um, and every day after I kept running and then in 20, 2017, I ran a marathon and, um, that was kind of, you know, the, just just by just going further than I did, you know, the day before. And so during that time, um, as I, as I started to lose weight, it's, I scheduled a CPAT and I, I failed my first two CPATs. Okay. Now what, with, with those failures, what, which part of the CPAT did you find was really the critical failing point? Okay. So the first time, so all the only thing I have done to prepare at this point is the cardiovascular aspect. And now I'm probably about 174 pounds at this time. So, you know, that's, that's, that's an okay weight. Um, but I got without having any other, no strength training. I thought I was going to go do the CPAP. The schedule, the first time I, I didn't make it past the stair climber. Second time I timed out at the dummy drag. Um, so my husband, this is in 2017, um, it's before I ran the marathon, he says, it might've been 2016. I'm, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a timeline in front of me, 2016, 2017. And he says to me, he's like, you know, if you're really serious about this, you're going to have to get a gym membership, hire a trainer, and you're just going to have to get strong. And, you know, he was right. And I, the, that comes also with some challenges like the nearest gym is 22 miles away okay 
So I start talking about this with one of the, the guys that I had done my cert one firefighter with who also happened to be um, a police officer in, in this small town that was 22 miles away where the gym was. I said, yeah, you know, like I'm trying to get past the CPAT and I'm going to have to, you know, we were just chatting about what, what goes into that. And I said, I'm going to have to end up hiring a trainer. And I think that I'm going to get a membership at the gym, you know, either here, there's another one, another 20, 20 miles away in the opposite direction. He's like, no, 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 don't, don't hire a trainer, get your gym membership at this, this gym and it's Darlington. So it's 20, 20 minutes from here get your gym membership there. When I get off work in the morning, he was a night shift cop. He's like, when I get off work in the morning, you can train with me. We'll get you there. Okay. So never having been to the gym before I'm 25 years old, I, I 26 years old, I, I go to the gym and not knowing what to expect. And uh, so I go from not going to the gym to lifting four days a week and being trained just basic. It was, it was a basic programming. I look back now and it was just, it was such basic programming. It was, you know, a day of, of chest and bench, you know, like your, your typical lifts that you would think of to, um, to strength train, you know, some deadlifts on another day, squats on another day, and then some accessory work on another day. And then he said, you know, bring your weight vest in. He knew I had a weight vest at that time. Then he's like, bring your weight vest in. And on the days when, um, when we're not training, you can do stair climber work. You can try to build your endurance that way. Perfect. So it had, it had a cardio aspect where I was building endurance and then I had the strength aspect. So then I then ended up passing my CPAT through, through doing that, um, through training and, um, apply started applying to the career departments around here that because now I had my my um my CPAT but going back to that when I was training for it was that when I was also getting my EMT basic this is this is the part of my life I look back on that's like kind of a whirlwind so I would wake up in the mornings and I would be to the gym by five and so I'd get up at four I'd be at the gym by five I would train for an hour and a half. I'd have all my clothes there ready for work and I would shower at the gym. I would get ready. I would go to work. I would work until three o'clock in the afternoon. And then my class for EMT basic was in the same city that I was working in, but it didn't start until six o'clock at night. So then I would run for about an hour and then I would go to EMT class until 10 o'clock from six o'clock at night till 10 o'clock at night. And then I would drive it 40 minutes home and I'd wake up and I would do it all over again. And that's, again, you have those days, you have those moments where you don't want to do it, but it's what needs to get done. <laughs> and that's why I, I caution anyone to ever rely on motivation. Nobody is motivated 100% of the time. But if you're going to consistently do things, you're going to have to learn to do them anyways. So I got through it. I applied. And... um I remember being in a conference room when um, the chief of my now career department called me after we had, you know, we'd went through interviews and everything like that. And he called and he asked me what I was doing for the next 25 years of my life. <laughs> and so the rest is kind of history. I left a corporate job because at that time I'd been hired as a project manager for Cummins Corporate. And um, here I am. So you got a significant pay raise when you joined the fire service? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, my salary was cut in about half. Uh, 
that that's that's still a hard pill to swallow. That's still a hard pill to swallow. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think that I'm fortunate because I think that I I left the second best job in the world to go to the best job in the world. Um, there are parts of me though that miss that very much miss corporate life. That miss miss the order and like the development and just how progressive working for a company like that was. And um, I go to the fire service and it's like being back in 1950. <laughs> like, I get there. They're still doing, they're still doing like trade slips and everything in triplicate on carbon paper. I'm like, how, how, how are you guys operating? Like what this can't, this, oh my goodness. Um, anyways, I am just a peon there. So it, it was not on me that they, they are now digital, but like, I just, I walked in there and I was like, wow, these are like the inefficiencies that you spot because you've been corporate mindset is to, to weed out inefficiencies, to get, to get rid of any waste, right? Lean manufacturing, um, Six Sigma is all about, you know, getting rid of those, um, inefficiencies and I walk in there and, and knowing that I have to keep my mouth shut too, you know, because I'm a rookie, everything it's, I still find it difficult some days to just bite my lip. Well, I think the thing that I see is that we are so siloed in the fire service and there are so many departments doing one part really well, but we don't knowledge share. So every department is inventing themselves from the ground up. Some do it better than others. You know, but you have like one department will have an amazing wellness program and maybe they'll have a, you know, an actual well, well educated, um, you know, wellness person there and leading that whole department. And then, you know, you go to another one and they're not allowed to even have weights in the gyms because HR doesn't want them in there. They're too dangerous, you know? So it's, it's, it's so crazy to see that. And when, when you talked about Cummings and, you know, how they identify talent and then you and then the perfect person because you'd been, on the assembly line and now you're up in that leadership position there's that mutual respect you know which we right. see in the fire service often not everyone but often you get those people that get all the bits of paper they fly up the ladder and they've never even done the job properly and so then there's a, there's there's not that respect you know there's not that leadership so um yeah i mean it's it's a really interesting perspective because i think the corporate world even though as we talked earlier can definitely be used to abuse a nation you know there i think from a leadership point of view and an organizational point of view there's a lot of things that absolutely you know some companies do very well i mean you hear like virgin richard branson's actually i think he's in on his way to space as we speak um, yes but, yes <laughs> happening now isn't it yes um but you know his whole thing has always been put the people first and then therefore the cu customer will be happy because your employees are happy you know right. again some great departments out there some awful departments out there i've worked for both types so i can attest um with the the ownership though and your journey i want to throw in my two cents because i wasn't trying to lose weight i've always been roughly around the same weight and i worked just as hard as you did because I also wanted to be a firefighter. And I think there's this misconception as well, like, oh, if you're skinny, then you're just going to walk right in. I, I needed to get the strength. And I would work my full-time job. I would work out the YMCA on my lunch break and eat my food you know, at the desk when, when I was working, get off um, and then go straight to the fire academy or EMT, whatever portion it was, go do that. I'd usually get there a little bit early and do towers and sleds and stuff. When I couldn't get to the gym, I'd run 
a four-mile track around my area, do pull-ups on the steps of the apartment complex. You know, you just, and I agree 100%, it pissed down with rain every single day in, in Florida. And I'd rain to the point, you know, I, I didn't even know if my headphones were going to work anymore because everything was just drenched. But just understanding, like you said, you just have to get it done. If you want to be a firefighter or a police officer or, you know, whatever field that involves you being in, you know, top physical shape to perform at your profession, then th th there's no shortcuts. You just have to put in the work. And if you were a collegiate athlete up to that point, you've already put in the work. If like you or me, you weren't, you know, thinking about being a firefighter until you became a firefighter, then that's when the work has to be put in. Right. I think that's also, um, you know, not growing up with people who who went to the gym. Like it was never a, a way was never paved for me either. So like not knowing what I needed to do, you know, nutrition. Like there's really two inputs, right? And you know, when we talk more about the corporate world, um, my what I want to do is kind of blend the two together. I want to, I want to share best practices. I want, which as you said, is, is something that we do in the corporate world. Well, it's not, you know, a knowledge silo is knowledge, you know, hoarded is knowledge wasted. Like that doesn't do us any good. Um, so it was, you know, this collaboration of ideas was always prevalent where I worked. Um, one of the things that we do is, you know, systematic problem solving, right? Root cause analysis, you know, actually getting to the heart of the problem, not what's not the squeaky wheel, as to say. So, you know, a lot of that is identifying inputs. And, you know, we'll talk later about my process of DMAC and how I did it was basically a systematic corporate process of define it, I, that I, the acronym DMAC, which D is define, M is measure a is analyze and C is continuously improve. So defining, you know, basically the project goal, which in my case was passing the CPAD or, you know, getting hired into a career department and then identifying those inputs, which the two inputs that we've been talking about, you know, that are, that are essential there um, are going to be nutrition and conditioning, right? Those are, when it comes to health, like what we talk about our environment, that's fine. But essentially it comes down to what you're putting in and what you're expelling in output. So in having to measure those two inputs or those, you know, define those two inputs, I think the interesting thing is that functionality of fitness is that it can be ever evolving. So I went from not being fit at all, in fact, to being obese, to then being a relatively normal body weight and starting with jogging and running to running a marathon, to then powerlifting, which is then when I was, um, that's kind of how it started when I was lifting. I was trying to keep up with this guy because I didn't know any different. I didn't know that there was an alternative weight to put on the bar. It was like, I had to lift that five times. <laughs> I know that sounds really, really simple, like like a simpleton, but like nobody told me that there there's any other way. So it was like, well, I've got to be able to do that. So then it was like, somebody had come to me and they're like, have you ever thought about competing? Cause your numbers are like, you don't have, and I mean, this is not, I didn't have a coach. I didn't have anything. I just, I ended up doing my my very first powerlifting competition entirely by myself um, didn't have any conditioning going up to it but I was already like lifting numbers that were very competitive with girls of my weight class so I started loving doing that um, so did the powerlifting thing and then you know did pass the CPAT and got hired and kind of realized that you know pulling one rep maxes they're a lot of fun 
but that was essentially how I was still training, which wasn't very functional for my job. So while that was what got me to pass the CPAP because I had put on some strength and size muscle wise, it wasn't necessarily what was going to keep me longevity in my career from my joints. I still love powerlifting. I still compete as a powerlifter, but I then pivoted and I started bodybuilding, which um, I did find a coach for that. I, he, he, he's a police officer in my hometown. So he, he understands the, the rigors of the job and that it's not always convenient, but that you also have to get it done. So I competed in my very first bodybuilding competition this spring. And then this year I'll compete in the fall as a power lifter. So I'm doing like a power building kind of thing, kind of pivoting the two things together, which has been interesting um, and a nice mesh of building strength and size and also like functionality because, you know, when I, when I add the more reps with less weight that builds the endurance, which helps with my job. But then I, I pivot to the, after I'm, I'm done competing that way, I pivot to the strength portion for the powerlifting. It's, it's a really nice cycle. And it, I wish that I would have found this earlier in life. Well, you mentioned about, um, you know, passing the CPAT and having the strength this time. Um, f- firstly, did you, how did you get on with the CPAT? Did you barely make it or did you have some, some breathing room with that time frame? So the first time that I passed the CPAT, so our candidate um, processes are, are two years long, but our CPATs are only good for a year. So the, the first time that I passed it, I was, I was just under the cutoff. Now I felt like I had done well. I didn't feel like it had wrecked me by any far cry. It was just, I was, I was cooking to get across the finish line and under the time. The second time I beat the test by like two and a half minutes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I did. I did well. I did very well. <laughs> I, th- um, I, I th- threw my hands in the air then because where I worked two departments ago, there was this mentality of, oh, I got, you know, 10, 19. That's it. You know, and then they'd stop. And I would tell people, no, the C- that's that's like the absolute bare minimum to walk through the door. Then you got to keep going. And it's funny. I just had a Facebook memories pop up. I was getting ready to test for another department had I not been able to to get sponsors so I could do this, you know, full time. And I did it at 45 years old and got 720. And it's not, oh, James, you're so amazing. It's just I kept my strength and conditioning up through my whole career and therefore was able to to do that. So when I'm not just sitting there on a, on a lazy boy with, you know, a bag of chips on my stomach saying, oh, you need to do better on the CPAP. To me, the CPAP is a great test, but barely passing it is not the goal. It's a, you maintain that standard throughout your career. Right. And another, you know, so in, it's interesting you bring that up because I think that we kind of go about recruiting women in, in the wrong way to, to the field. Um, you know, we're, we're, we lay down what, what we require. Right. And the CPAT is always like kind of at the bottom so many of these women, you know, they don't have the problems passing EMT or paramedic or their fire certifications or have the education requirements. It's they get to the bottom where it's like, oh, okay, I have this interview, but I first need to like, now I need to pass a CPAT. And it's like, it's, I have three weeks until I interview. And it's like, I, do you believe in divine intervention? Because three weeks is not enough to, to train to get past that um, if you haven't been training. So women will come to me and say, you know, you've done this, help me. And I'm, I am so happy to help. That is where, where I think my, my passion lays. And I, that's what I want to want to do is help other women get past that. 
but we need to start recruiting in a different way to that demographic. That needs to be first and foremost, like, hey, you need to start strength training now, like before you even start thinking that you're going to be a paramedic and things like that, because you're going to go to paramedic school where your days are going to be, you know, your life is not going to be yours. And if you don't already have the habit of I get up and I work out for an hour before I go do this, then you're not going to be successful in the, the latter part of it where men, you know, if they're coming out of college or high school and they're, they're going down this career path of being a firefighter, you guys, I mean, I know you said you had to build some strength, but you, I've, I know there are plenty of guys that I work with that they walked through that test without doing a whole lot of training because they're 19, 20 year old dudes with enough testosterone and enough, you know, muscle mass from just existing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I've seen the converse, though. I think what the CPAT has done well, and I think you know, there's definitely room. One of my friends is, is in the process of developing a, a, a different version of the same kind of test with even more specific equipment, um, which you can also use to incrementally load and build your way up to it. Um, but I remember <laughs> when I tested to, to come to Orange County, there was this guy, and he was huge. Huge, probably mid twenties, you know, little Viking looking dude, and the whole time we're on deck, he's telling me how he's going to smash this test and he's going to hit the force entry prop in three hits. And he went out, and I'm so I'm up, I'm next, so I'm putting on my gear, my little Lego helmet, and all that stuff, and you know, my little short shorts, because God forbid you have to do a fire test wearing the gear that you'd actually do the real fire service in. But anyway, I digress, um, and I hear this, you know. It sounds like a you know Shire horse, like one of the Budweiser horses, huffing and puffing. And I look round, and the dude's dragging the empty hose line, so he must have barely made it off the treadmill or the the stepmaster, and yeah, and then basically falls out right there. So that's the thing, male, female. If you don't prepare for it, you're not going to be ready. I I spent you know many sessions holding a 45 pound plate on the 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 stair you know step mill in gyms. I sorted it out. I did this running. I did this, and so. I think you're absolutely right. You know, we, male, female, whatever, if you go to the CPAT unprepared, that means you don't want to be a firefighter, in my opinion, because you obviously know, you know, this is what we, we do. And, and the CPAT has so much content on how to prepare for it. There's videos on every single little part of it. So, but yeah, if it's not educated, I agree, you know, that that needs to be put at the forefront. But what I think we do very poorly in the fire service is go to places where we already have athletes, male, female, gay, straight, black, white, pink, purple, and recruit there. So go to CrossFit gyms, volleyball teams, softball, wherever, and find people that are already in good shape. You know, and if they want to, you know, be in the fire service, then awesome. But you know, we have to mentor these people, as you said, prior. But you know, if you go to, you know, a video gaming conference, that might not be the best pool of people to pull for for the fire service. You know, I think that's an interesting concept and I think it makes the idea of recruiting really easy if we are creating or, you know, targeting people who are already fit. However, if that were the way that we were doing it, I wouldn't be here. Um, I think that people who have had to come through some adversity in order to get here and prove that they want to be here might be your better candidates is my argument. Well, so um, just to, to add to that, so what I love is the mentorship programs that, that we have here, for example. So say in your town, you had to go all this way to find someone to train you and everything. That's, I think, how you create, and we talked about it before we started recording, diversity is imagine if you had some sort of program in your town or neighboring town that you had fire fighters putting on classes to get you from 
I've never seen a fire hose to smash in the CPAP. Right. And that's where I think, you know, my mission and vision is becoming more and more clear of what I want to do. And that's to either, you know, maybe I can't do that in my small town because let's face it, there's just not that many people here. Um, but my reach, you know, social media has has good things about it. I know we like to talk about it's it's dark sides all the time and it does have those, but I've been able to reach women who have seen me and are like, oh my God, you know, you you lost all this weight and now you're doing this thing. Help me, teach me. And so um, I have been working with, uh, her name is Val Solano. She um, is with a Colorado fire department, Aurora. Um, and she is now a training lieutenant out there and her and I have been working together and um, I've got now some programming that's basically 90 days to CPAT. So three months, you know, your triphase training, like your good stable triphase training that comes with a meal plan and an eating program so that you're fueled enough because usually those two things need to go hand in hand. Um, and we're, we've kind of, you know, talked about the movements and all the exercises that are so, that are more important for a woman to develop just because of our physiology and our, you know, muscle composition, building more upper body strength and, you know, lower body endurance. Um, so we were developed, have developed this and now it's become kind of like this also, not, not only 90 days to CPAT, but Val's challenge to me was like, I want it to be that women who are going to be coming to my fire academy maybe have done this for the first 90 days so that when they come to my fire academy, they're already, you know, they're ready to hit the ground running. Um, so I've been able to reach out. I've, I do have a few clients that are, are going through this 90 day process um, where you, the idea is that you're ready to go and schedule your CPAT from 90 days from when you start. It's not a one size fits all. There's, you know, 12 weeks, 13 weeks. Maybe you're just getting off the couch and haven't done anything. And then we got to start a little bit. We got to start further back. But it's all about building good habits. Um, it's all about having like that hour of a day, whether it's active recovery or cardio with the stair climber vest and doing things like that or strength training, building that hour of a day into your schedule and doing it regardless of whether you want to, you know, we're a lot of my clients, well, I'm busy or I have my, my job, so I can't do it this day. It's like, you got to find time. I can, I can give you all the tools. I can give you all of the tools, but I can't do it for you. And that's where we need to be like, really, we need to hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. So you, I kind of, I think I cut you off mid um, thought process of the last question. So with um, the CPAC, you know, not being at the forefront of the testing process, how would you change that to to make it more obvious to a candidate full start? I don't think this is a male or female, you know, issue at all. But how how would you change that so that the the emphasis was on the strength and conditioning? So people understood, hey, if you want to be a firefighter and it's you know tests is gonna be in June and this is January, like today's the day you need to start. Right. You know, I think part of that it, it comes down with our recruiting and education, you know, right now, high school students can, can get their EMT and can go through their fire service, you know, certifications and it's put on, you know, some high schools are even putting it on, but what if we were, we had the integrative, um, the FIAD part of it almost, um, where people were able to do that. And like you had said, the mentorship thing, like, how do we make that available? How, how do we get a really robust system program in place where we can 
identify the people who are saying, hey, I want to test in six months. So I need to look, you know, it's January. I need to start looking for someone who can help me now. How do we do that? And I think that's that's my question is how how do we get out there? How how do we make that available? Yeah. Well, I think that the mentorship is the, the one thing that I've seen as a solution. You know, when you're talking about, like you said, just recruitment in general, when you talk about diversity, and we'll, we'll unwrap that word a little bit more in a minute, but, you know, let's say you're talking about gender, race, whatever, you know, political checkboxes we're, we're leaning into this month. Um, that's how you fix it. Because yes, undoubtedly, there are people of all colors and creeds that grow up in areas of communities that just don't have the access to you know, paying for fire school or paying for a trainer or whatever. And the mentorship programs that I've seen, whether it's, you know, the boxing um, club in New York that was uh, founded by the police department there, whether it's my friend's, um, you know, mentorship program here that, that actually has the city and the county working together. Imagine that. Um, you know, they are, it's free. They have the gear. You literally have to f- show up. If you can physically come to that fire station, they will put you through the scholarships for fire school. Normally those guys are picked up from local agencies. So they've removed all the barriers to entry. You literally just have to physically show up, you know, get on a bike, get a, get a ride, whatever it is. And I'm sure in worst case, they would even arrange for someone to pick you up, you know, if you were really wanting to go. So I think that that is exactly how we find the best candidates because we all know if you go into a random group of a hundred people, a random group, and you pick everyone based on skin. Let's say, say you haven't got an English people. So you go and you're like, all right, all you English people come here. You've all got a job. You know that some of us are going to be worthy candidates and some of us won't. If I was hired as an accountant, I'd be awful. I, you do not want me working with your money. I tell you that right now, you know, so, so yeah, I agree. And I think that's the next thing is that all these local communities need to find a way to mirror some of these great mentorship programs and apply them in their own areas so that we can find the best candidates of all backgrounds and empower them to come into this job, you know, physically and mentally well prepared. I think that would be fantastic. I wish that you, I would say that communities who have that are fortunate. Um, The area in which I live does not have anything like that in place at all. Um, And I think that part of it though, is also, um, I don't know if it's regionally is the right word, but like population density. So to to start up a program like that is the initial startup is a lot of um, upfront work, right? And if there's only, you know, like population density isn't here what it is in New York or, you know, wherever the bigger, where you're going to get more bang for your buck, I guess. So. I don't know if there is a way like a virtual network of mentors that we can elicit to provide those resources. Mm-hmm. That's a good, I mean, we're not densely populated here. We're quite a small town really. Um, but I think the other side is volunteerism. It's literally the individuals are involved. They're all full-time firefighters and they volunteer their time for free. You know, obviously they got, you know, old gear cause these kids aren't going into burns. So, you know, gear that's out of date and and they just take you know four hours of their their time once a week twice a week three times a week meet at a fire station and just put them through stuff so i think the barrier to entry is very low of of course you know the more involved again hr and all these people that will complicate things and you know but if you can just get it like okay everyone signs a waiver you show up and then we do our thing um 
you know, it doesn't need to be complicated at all. But I mean, I agree. An online component, I think these guys would be a great, a great group to create some sort of template because they've been so successful here. Yeah. So if you happen to be living in, you know, in the middle of Oklahoma in a farmhouse and you burning desire to be a firefighter, well, you're probably already in good shape anyway if you're a farmer. But, <laughs> but yeah, you can you can start understanding, learn the lingo, and you know, start getting prepared to be a candidate. Right. So what about your your journey then? You mentioned DMAC. So tell me tell me how you applied um, a, a principle that you got from the corporate world to your own wellness journey. So DMAC, as we talked about, define, measure, analyze, continuously improve. Um, I basically took that and just kind of used, which, you know, if, if I were in the corporate world, maybe I would talk about reducing quality issues in parts per million to zero. Maybe that's my defined project goal. But for me, I transitioned that to, okay, let's use the same concept, but the project goal is to get hired by a fire department. So then I had to identify all of my inputs, which we talked about, the CPAT, EMT basic, um, having the uh, the credit hours, having firefighter one and two. So those are all the inputs. So then from there, branching out and saying, all right, let's analyze what goes into those inputs. And for me, you know, basically check boxes on the other things, because I already had a four-year degree. I was already, um, you know, a volunteer firefighter. I had my, um, my cert one and cert two. And you know, enough education credits from my degree. So now it's just the CPAT. So what goes into passing the CPAT successfully? Well, you know, I did this kind of two different ways. You know, there's the two major inputs was just strength and cardio, right? So improving my strength by going and training at the gym and then improving my cardio by putting on the stair stair climber, getting on the, putting on the vest and getting on the climber. And then I was also running, you know, I was, gearing up for this marathon but in between all that you know looking at the strength exercises that were applicable to the eight or nine parts of the CPAT. so if i'm going to have to drag a dummy if i'm going to have to do a ceiling breach and pull if i'm going to have to do a search through a maze i'm gonna have to pull hose i'm gonna have to do the you know the obvious one is the very first one right that's that that has its own exercise that I'm going to do in order to get re- ready for that portion of it, which is the stair climber and the vest. Um, so analyzing what exercises I'm doing and if they're targeting the muscle groups that are necessary to do the things successfully for the CPAT and then continuously improving on the process. Like I said, you know, barely passing the one time to, you know, beating it by, you know, I had an eight minutes, something, I don't know. I don't remember, honestly don't remember what my time was, but I had beat it by about two minutes my previous time. So, um, and I think that's all we can do. And you can also apply that to just about anything in life. As long as you have a clearly defined objective, whether it's that you want to, you know, people, people come to me and say, I want to lose weight. And I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of fluffy. That's, that's a pretty, um, that's pretty vague thing. How, how much weight do you want to lose? And what is your timeline? is usually my question for people or what is your goal in the gym i want to oh i want to do this well what is it you want to do and what is your timeline because it all depends on that and um just applying the same principles to that go ahead and identify your inputs and now let's analyze how those inputs are you know affecting your your outcome and then continuously improving on it basically it comes down to setting up boundaries and if that's your goal then 
whatever things you're doing that day better be moving you closer to that goal. Otherwise, why are you doing them? So saying no to certain things, going out to dinner because, hey, I've got this eating, I've got this meal plan, I'm going to eat according to my what I need to. So I have the energy in the gym. So I have to say no, or I have to say, hey, I'd be happy to come, you know, get together and have to socialize, but I don't necessarily need to go to a steakhouse to do it. And what about the nutritional choices? So, you know, you, you talked about the, the bodybuilding and the powerlifting and the running. What were, kind of walk me through some of the changes. And I know, as you mentioned, they were incremental, but I mean, clearly, as you said, you can't out-train a bad diet. So your nutrition obviously was was the the biggest part of, of getting from you know, where you were to the incredible shape you're in now. So I'm actually, honestly, still, I think every day I'm learning more and more about that and how, you know, like even meal timing is affecting like my my lifts and things like that. The the first very little thing that I did was that I started drinking more water. People think that they drink enough water. They don't. Um, we're, we're like grossly un, under hydrated as a nation. I between the energy drinks that are in and soda and caffeine that are diuretics. And then, you know, we think that we're drinking all this water, but I'm talking about actually drinking water. People are like, well, can I put this in it? Can I have this instead? No, just drink water. Like stop overcomplicating things. We love to overcomplicate things. Just don't overcomplicate it. Drink some more water. It's that simple. So I have like my, my thing here. I mean, I drink two of these a day. It's a gallon. Sometimes I drink more. Um, it's necessary. It is necessary to let go of fat in order, like, if your body feels like it's dehydrated, it's going to hang on to that fat because it can squeeze water from it. So just do yourself a favor, drink more water. That's that's the, the single simplest thing that I started doing. And bonus, you're filled up on water, you're less likely to consume other things. The hunger uh, mechanisms aren't being driven by thirst, which actually happens in our body for whatever reason. But, you know, sometimes you're actually just thirsty. And that's, that's um, one simple way. If you're consistently doing that, consistently. That is the other big aspect that we hammered on this earlier. Consistency and all of these things are what's important. You can't do this for, I, I love the people that say, well, you know, Monday through Friday, I'm really, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm right on with my diet and I, I do everything I should. And then on the weekends, I just, I, I let myself, I let myself go. Well, where do you think those calories are going? They're not going away. Like your, your body is still having to burn them off that, that big bolus that you gave it on the weekends. Um, so changing my diet from doing that because then once I identified that my portions, you know, that was the big thing, you know, getting my portions under control and actually eating what a portion is versus when I'm done being hungry. Right. That was another thing. Um, as far as with my diet and not out training a bad diet. Um, so that was another big thing. Meal prep was probably the biggest thing. So I actually, right before we got on our, our call today, I did my meal prep for the week. I like to do it on Sundays, but I work a 24 on 48 off schedule. So occasionally I work a Sunday or every third Sunday I work. So it's not always Sunday, but I like to do it on Sundays. And I like to get everything prepped for the week. And I do this by, for me now, currently, I'll talk about like kind of leading up to what I had done before, but currently, you know, my trainer will send me the lifts for the week. And then um, I have a, a diet program designed by him so I generally have like high days and low days depending on what I'm lifting that day. So high days would be like your leg day, right? I'm going to be burning through some carbohydrates that day. So I will go through and I will mark and 
weigh and measure and prep all of my food for those days. So I had, you know, three cardio days, the two high days and the two low days that I had to put together today. Um, and then the awesome thing. So it's, so it is some work up front for me, but the awesome thing is it's all done for the week. I, I, I do not have to think about what I need to, to do for dinner or my after lift meal or anything like that now, which is awesome. Um, so kind of like leaving that to somebody who knows what's synergistic as far as what I'm going to be lifting and what I'm going to need. And now what I'm getting into is more the meal plan timing, which I throw that out the window when I'm on duty because I generally just do cardio. So I have a set meal plan that day. That doesn't really matter when I eat things because you know how that goes. You're going to get called out, not get, your workout's going to get interrupted. So I do cardio on my days when I'm at work, but my lifting days, uh, my trainer has a, does a phenomenal job of structuring based on like what to eat and when. So like a carb and protein for right after the workout, um, berries and, you know, a carb source for right before the workout. Um, it's just protein at night for restful, for more recovery because that helps. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked at how much consuming protein right before I go to bed makes my sleep cycle so much better. Like I just get so, such better rest. I can't, I cannot, I cannot believe how long I spent not knowing these certain things and really digging myself a hole. Um, even before I had gotten healthy or gotten to a healthier weight, um, you know, I think about my eating habits and, you know, binge eating, like I had talked about, you know, I would think that I was doing really good because I wouldn't eat anything. This is, you know, way back, this was 10 years ago way back, I was thinking I was doing really good because I wouldn't eat at all during the day. And then for supper, I would just, I, it was, it was a free for all and all the way up till bed, but I would be like, Oh, but I didn't eat anything throughout the day. So it's, it's not that bad, but like, that's really, that's just some ignorant thinking on my part. And it was lack of education on what, what things were needed, what the body needed. Um, going up to that um, before I had a trainer, before I had somebody telling me you should eat this, you should be consuming this amount of protein, you know, just basically doing my own research and asking like, how much protein do I need? Well, I think we're all kind of grossly under eating our protein and overeating carbohydrates because it's convenient. Um, so that was a big change that happened for me for about five years ago. And then, um, now that I'm not in competition prep season as far as bodybuilding and I'm more doing powerlifting prep season, I get a little bit more leeway in that I get an earned meal each week. And that's a, a meal where I'm, I'm allowed to have what I want. It's not part of the meal plan. So I think that um, everything in moderation, including moderation, is important. And that's where I kind of come down with my meal plans. Now, with your carbs you know obviously that's a that's a diverse spectrum i mean you know a, a a blow pop is a carb and then you know beans are carbs you know so um what kind of carbs do you tend to to use in in your meals so on my cardio day diets which would be a low carb day most of my carbohydrates come from from my vegetables because i'm not i don't need that heavy carb bolus to get through a lift on days when I'm lifting, they come from like jasmine rice or um, also one of the things that I have that's a very fast digesting carb is 
it's Gerber baby food rice cereal. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like the first thing that you give your kid when they can eat solid food. I it's do. Rice it's cereal. like little flakes that you add water to. Yeah, yeah. It's creamed rice. Throw that in with my protein shake or actually just heat up the water and mix it up and put berries in it. And that's my, that's my quick, quick carb. Um, I also sometimes get sweet potatoes. Um, that's, that's part of my meal plan. That's, you know, occasionally, like when I was kind of like more in a bulking phase where I was trying to put on size and mass, um, I would, you know, tortillas were part of it. Corn tortilla, or, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Corn tortillas were part of it or whole wheat tortillas. Um, rice cakes were another part of it. I, I stay away from breads pastas as much as i can that that is that is specifically what i reserve for my those processed grains carbs whatever are specifically reserved for when i have a earned meal or a cheat people call them a cheat meal i call them an earned meal i don't think that you should cheat on your diet you should earn a, a time when you're it's it's all just a mindset thing um you should earn a time where you're you're able to have what you you know what tastes good to you um but nutrition having to pivot from like, this is what I put in my mouth because this is what I want to eat because it tastes good to this is what my body needs. It's, it really is all about mindset. Like this is what I need to eat to fuel my body versus this is what tastes good to me. Yeah. Well, it's interesting as well, because in the whole kind of anti-carb movement, you know, rice was included in there, but yet pretty much everyone from Mike Dolce to Stan Efferding and some of these great, you know, high level athletes who are also high level nutritionists, you know, rice isn't demonized. So I think that's if you're gonna have a you know some sort of carb, and a lot of people listening, if you if you're a, a firefighter, you're gonna need you know carb sources, as you mentioned, in in certain cycles of your training, or you know whether it's on shift. Um, but then you have obviously the refined starches, the pastas and breads, which you know I think are, are the other way. So it's good to hear that. And then with the timing, I had Julian Pinot on, who's the founder of StrongFit. And in one of the conversations, he talked about um, he's like a mad scientist when it comes to movement and you know, mindset and nutrition and everything. And yeah, they removed any kind of deliberate carb sources and just had protein and, and vegetables as their evening meal. And they were all reporting, you know, better metabolism, you know, uh, gut health, better sleep. So, you know, absolutely having your carbs before you train. But yeah, in the evening when you're trying to basically deregulate the nervous system and get in that parasympathetic state you don't want to inject a bunch of glucose into the body and it just makes perfect sense but again i only came across that a couple years ago myself so i think the other thing with nutrition and exercise is not to beat yourself up like ah they they told me the the food pyramid yeah they did you know and it might have come from a good place it might have come from you know the the grain farmers trying to sell their their stuff but either way I believed it back then. It's okay to say, all right, things have changed. I've changed my mindset and, you know, just, just move forward from there. There's, there's, you know, people talk about being wishy-washy or whatever. No, you just, with what knowledge you had then, that's where you made your decisions. Now you have all this extra knowledge. You can change the way you think, move, eat, etc. And that's certainly something I'm trying to, um, to gain more knowledge on my, I'm, I'm very upfront with, with people and tell them that I'm, I am not a nutritionist. I don't, I don't have fancy letters after my name that say NASM or any sort of certified personal trainer. My stuff is the things that I'm telling you are some, some of it is research-based, but most of it is like, I was, I've been there, done that. Like, it's just based on one person's experience, um, who, who went from a really unhealthy lifestyle to a more healthy lifestyle. 
I will tell you that um, I, you know, I try not to, to knock anything until I've tried it. And I've always been really kind of against um, the keto diet. I think, I think that it's fad. I think that it's, 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 tr- you know, it's a trendy thing because it allows for people to, to drop rate, re- weight really fast um, with only making, you know, subtle changes as far as just simple, don't, don't eat any carbs, but the body needs carbohydrates. Like I, and I think that it sets people up for failure because you drop all of that water weight fast when you pull the carbohydrates off, but it's not doing you a service in the long term. I think that eating that high of fat is, is destructive over time. And I know that there's plenty of people that are, are just itching to tell me otherwise, but you cannot come at me and tell me that long-term over a long-term, you know, eventually you're going to eat a carbohydrate and you're going to gain all that weight back. Do I think that it sometimes jumpstarts people? Absolutely. People, people see that they see the weight loss, but I think it, the, the diet itself sets people up for kind of like, I don't want to say failure, but it, it really does because we're, we're human. We're going to eat carbs eventually. Um, I did go ahead and try it as part of, um, when I was trying to do a cut, I didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had the energy. I felt sluggish. Um, it, it, it did not work for me. That's, that is, I'm, I'm, you can say that I'm, I'm anti-keto and I'm kind of anti-crossfit and we can, we can talk about that. It's great. If you, I, I think there's nothing really wrong with it. It's just not for me. Um, so that's just the, my opinions on the things, but I'm definitely anti-keto in that I don't think that you can build the strength that you could off of clean carbs and, you know, being better for your body and your, um, you know, physiology in general. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head too. It's not for me. I mean, that's just it. You, you're not going to know until you try it. And I've had people on here that are plant-based that swear up and down. That's the way to eat. And then there's other people that go all the way to the carnivore side. And, you know, I mean, again, I, I, I'm pretty much everything. I'm just standing in the middle of most conversations going, well, processed carbs are shit. Let's be honest, sugars. And so that take that out. And what have you got? You basically got a plant-based diet. And if you choose to put meat in, then put clean, holistically raised meat. And if you don't, that's fine too. You know, and there might be some deficiencies, but you have to listen to your body. Do I have the energy? You know, do I have the gut health? Um, but yeah, and I think keto, from what I understand, keto has some great applications with, um, like you said, resets with, with supposedly assisting with chemotherapy. I wish that we would actually focus some more on nutrition on its own to try and reverse some of these diseases, including cancer. But, you know, that takes a brave set of souls to, to buy into that study. But yeah, I mean, they, they all have applications, but ultimately if we, how you know our great great grandparents say you're you're ninety percent there, right? Absolutely, and I'm you know I'm a big proponent. Like you said, uh, I'm we hunt, we 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 raise um, you know we raise poultry, we we get our our beef just down the road. I, I would say I'm I am one hundred percent for a carnivorous diet, but with you know, and I guess omnum, omnivore is the the proper proper term. And again, it goes back to everything in moderation, including moderation. There are times when you can go off the rails and have what you want, but um, that moderation aspect of it, of like carbs, but good carbs, like you said, plant-based carbs or, you know, clean carbs um, instead of the processed sugary junk. I think that's when, when I started looking at the bodybuilder aspect and having to cut out sugar. Um, Cause that's like, a, that, that is just, that blows my mind, James. It blows my mind 
how much sugar why why is it in so many things why i can't i'm still just like everything you pick up is sugar and everybody's like well it makes it taste better but what i i can tell you this when i when i cut out sugars and i i did non-sugar or you know the sugar free or just um no added sugars for three months to just kind of like cleanse my body and get ready for a bodybuilding diet and i went without the sugars and then all of a sudden i added sugar in it did not taste good so what is it that we're adding it to everything but saying oh because it makes it taste good but yet if you cut it out then it's not tasting good what what have we done to our to our people yeah well i did a, a juice fast um i must say a juice fast. i mean I, I i did juices only it's not really a fast if you're having all the all the you know the fruit juice in there but um it was just a reset it's exactly what i want to do caffeine alcohol sugar and I think that's it. When when you come from another country and you see these funny videos now on social media, like, oh, you know, someone from Germany tries an American candy or whatever. It is like our stuff is so, so sweet and so salty, you know, and, and when you start cooking for yourself more and you go to one of those chain restaurants and you have a steak, you're like, oh, my God, this is awful. They just laced it in, in everything because the cut of meat is probably a bit shit, you know. So, you know, I think that's the problem. We, we've incrementally raised that salt and sugar bar to where if you don't have it it tastes weird but i mean like chili why the hell would you put sugar in chili but here we put sugar in chili well yeah and not even like you know you said like american candy versus german candy but like ketchup has it in it barbecue sauces um just it is in everything 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 i mean cereals unless you're buying you know your cornflakes or whatever like that you're uh, or rice krispies that don't have it like every cereal has so much sugar in it. yogurt i it's just it blows my mind um what you know like when you start reading the labels and you start looking at it and you're like this adds up a lot what is that doing to diabetes what is that doing to obesity um well, we just know. Kind of, 70% of the country is what it's doing um and i think that you know this is something we talked about when we chatted Early, at an earlier date was about how, you know, in the fire service, we have this, I, I, I love training. I think training is great, but we, you know, we train for all of these scenarios where if we're looking at what the priority is, which would be keeping firefighters alive in my mind, reducing line of duty deaths, right? Because everybody likes to give that emotional statement of you should train like this job, like your life depends on it because it does, which is true, but that's like to evoke emotion in you that this is important. Um, I love training. I'm not taking away from that, but when almost 50%, I think it was the last line of duty data that I've seen was 2017. I don't know if it's been updated since, but it was like 47%. So that's half of your pie chart line of duty deaths were cardiac stress related incidents. That's, that's frightening. If all of the conferences that we go to, all of the trainings that we put on every day, you know, these bulletins on safety that are coming out are targeting, you know, building collapse and search and rescue and things like that, which are all important things, but we're failing to address what's really killing firefighters. And I don't know how much longer we're going to do that. Again, I think, you know, some of it comes down to this is the way things have always been and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I look at that. And as, like I said, when I was doing um, as a data analyst and I, I look at what the priorities are, 
and I see that big chunk and I don't see a ton of things addressing that. I mean, like that's a crisis as far as I'm concerned, but yet every conference I go to, it's tactics on just about everything else. Yeah. Well, I found, and this may be just because I've gone to these particular conferences, but correct me if I'm wrong, if you've seen the same thing, not so much on the hot part where it's like VES or something. It's very, very exhausting. Normally you see the, the tactical athletes in, in, in that kind of class, but overall the conferences, the, you know, the, the general, you know, workshop ones, you see the obesity in the fire service. You see these firefighters from all over the place that are woefully out of shape. And I'm, I'm very, very, you know, persistent on my message, which is again, the environment. I think we've got an environment that sets our people up for failure. Sleep deprivation and the shifts, and I think that the twenty-four hour, excuse me, twenty twenty-four seventy-two should be an industry standard. But again, there's where that silos come in. The Northeast is like, well, that's normal, and then the rest of the country is like, what? We do twenty-four seven um, forty-eight, you know. And we wonder why our people are falling apart. But um, but yeah, I mean, you talk about the tactics and everything. One of the, the biggest ironies to me is people will, you know, get all tingly in their special place about you know the the leather leather helmets and the forceful entry prop. But can you get your ass 20 floors up to that door in the first place? You know, because you've grown a beautiful mustache, you know, but that T-shirt's hanging on for dear life, you know. I'm sorry, but it's just, it is what it is. And like I said, this is from someone who's trained my whole life to to try and stay. And I'm not by any means the best firefighter. I don't teach anything out there because I don't think I'm the forceful entry guru or whatever. But I know sure as shit I can throw 100 pounds on my back and walk 28 stories because I did it recently, you know. So... It's all well and good to have those trainings and tactics, but I agree with you 100%. If you don't have the performance ability, then what what use is that knowledge to that kid that's stuck on the 28th floor and you gassed out on the 10th? You might be the ropes guru of the department, but you're fucking useless right now because you can't even get to where you're needed. Absolutely agree. And that's that's where I want to see the tides turn. I think that we need to stop stop attacking what is like it looks good, right? Tactics are cool and sexy and, you know, we can, we can go do this, you know, all of these, these fun things and be gurus about this. And I think it's awesome. I'm not taking away from that. I think that's great and it's necessary, but we need to start getting to root cause of what's killing people. And that's that we have, the fire service is not exempt from the obesity epidemic. No, no. And I said that the environment makes it worse. And I think if you pull the 2020 stats, certainly in law enforcement, despite all these awful you know killings that we're seeing from all these police officers being murdered i believe covid killed more police officers than anything last year and before that i think it was suicide if i'm not mistaken um but you know what what is what are those covid deaths really they're the final nail in the coffin of someone who's really really vulnerable now of course there are those anomalies that appeared very healthy and had some sort of you know fragility in their their system same with the brain bleeds same with the triple a's you know we we you know, the, the, the wolf Parkinson's. I mean, we have these things that kill young, healthy people, but that's not sure. most but of them. Yes. And yeah, I, I think that we have not addressed that at all in this. I'm putting quotes around pandemic because it's really just been the obesity epidemic on steroids. I mean, that's not the right way to say it, but um, it's, it's the final nail in the coffin, as you said, for people who are at, are at risk. Um, and why are they at risk? Most of them have a unhealthy, very unhealthy BMI. 
And I think the thing that I'm seeing a trend in more, and this is just my my own observation, I think some of this is regionally too. I, I don't know how things are in Florida. I'm, I've, I've been there to visit once. I loved it. It was wonderful. Um, <laughs> I would move there in a heartbeat. But I think that what I'm seeing, this is just not that I'm keeping, you know, this isn't a research project that I've got data on, but when I look around now, I'm not, the majority isn't, you know, people who have a few pounds to lose. The majority of people that I'm seeing that are, you know, overweight are obese and morbidly obese, like to the extremes. Uh, that seems to be trending upwards in my area. Just in where, in where I live in the Midwest, this is Midwesternly. Um, and I think, you know, goes towards, you know, we were probably the last ones hanging on for, you know, um, agrarian area to industrialize. And now we're almost mostly industrialized and people are just kind of like catching up with that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Florida, we have you know, a huge obesity epidemic. I was just in Ohio, was, you know, definitely significant there. I was in Texas the week before, saw the same thing. So, I mean, it's a national problem. I, I truly believe that people that live on the coasts tend to be in better shape. I'm sure like Colorado, for example, another place where, you know, activity and healthy living is definitely prioritized. But I think, you know, if you if you went to South you know, to the, the center of LA, I think you're less likely to find as many healthy people as you would say in Huntington Beach, for example, because, you know, if you live by the beach and the ocean's your playground, you know, then then you just can't and if you to me, even the fact that if you're normally in board shorts or a bikini or you know, smaller clothes, you're more likely, I think, to, to be conscious of, of your health versus if you're bundled up in Nebraska for months at a time, it may not be as prioritized. But but yeah, but I mean, with that, with that message back to the fire service, what frustrates me is there is no downside. We, if we're in the correct shape, not only are we going to be able to perform the duties that's asked of us, and EMS too, they, they can almost get a pass. No, EMS are the ones that are going to have to go into a, a mass shooting and, and you know, retrieve patients, you know. So what I don't like is the fact that, you know, we almost give EMS a break on that side. I disagree completely. I think EMS should be held to a similar standard because they have to retrieve people from, you know, all kinds of situations. But so you have the performance side, but then you have the wellness side. I want the men and women of the fire service, law enforcement, EMS to then retire and have an amazing retirement with their families. And we're not seeing that. We're seeing them dropping dead within five years, more often than not, which is absolutely heartbreaking. So there is no downside. We're better at our job and you forge longevity in our career, which then allows you to transfer knowledge from the you know the veterans to the, the rookies. So the fact there's so much resistance, but that's the issue we see. We get a resistance from administration. We get resistance from unions. We get resistance from the men and women that know damn well they're out of shape and are too scared to address it and would rather shame the fit people than actually step up and actually own their own fitness. So there's a, there's a systemic issue that we have to address from the firefighter level up to the, the chief level and beyond and also up to the union level and beyond. And, and if you're in a department where your union opposes annual fitness tests, for example, that needs to change. Shame on you. If you're a firefighter and you oppose your men and women being held to a standard that will allow them to perform and allow them to retire healthy, you're part of the problem. I think the delicate balance that comes with that, and I'm speaking from a place of someone who has been um, 
obese, morbidly obese, and who who has been bullied and shamed and everything else. And speaking from that place, I think the delicate balance that we need to find is how do we address that in a constructive way? Because it eventually, when someone isn't ready to to hear those things or to take them on, it can be it can feel like an attack. Now again, this is how how do we do that? How do we become better um, better stewards? Um, of of our people and better taking care of our people better so that it's not an attack and it, it becomes the standard and something that people want to follow as opposed to feeling like they're being bullied into it because I think that that is another aspect of it. You see a lot of the fat shaming, you see a lot of um, the, the teasing, the bullying that, you know, that's that's part of the fire, you know, people want to say that's fire, part of the fire service, you know, we, we give each other a hard time, but I don't know if we're, if we actually want to make a change that that's not the way to do it. So how then do we go about doing it? I see. I think it's actually, again, it's not complicated in my opinion. Of course you do it with kindness and compassion. I'm not saying from, I can't stand that, you know, hard from the yard, shaming bullshit. Um, but you have to draw a line in the sand. We are a profession and I, I use this a lot. Just ask yourself this. How would you feel? You have a nine-year-old. How would you feel if your nine-year-old died because the person that had been spent, sent to save her couldn't get to the stairs, couldn't get up there? You know? I mean, you, you'd want to kill them. You know what I mean? It'd be completely unacceptable. This is who you pay through your taxes to protect your family. So there, there's that ownership. And you draw a line in the sand. However, because we've been allowed to, to basically, you know... Um, regress to the point that we are physically compared to the lifeguard industry, the the special operations community, SWAT, all these places that keep that bar high, we have some work to do. So you don't shame those people, but you tell them, hey, here's how we're going to roll this out. You know, year one, we you know, right now we're going to do testing. Okay, then there's going to be these, these um, layers of where we're going to start helping you guys get fitter we're going to do a CPAT a year from now we're going to start working towards that because you're going to have one or two people you know the person that fell behind that wants to get back to where they are that's going to feel better you know wearing it's going to feel more attractive to their significant other you know it's going to be able to do more with their kids there's no downside again and then you have the person that doesn't want to do any work and that's the person that should never be in the profession in the first place and that's not fat shaming that's just separating the firefighters from the freeloaders so then you absolutely create a path for that person to get to where they need to be. But there has to be a line in the sand, whether it's, you know, two years, three years, whatever. So, hey, if you don't, if you can't pass a CPAT in two years from now, then we do have a problem. So that's how I think you do it. You don't fat shame, but you have to say enough is enough. And in, in, like I said, in the lifeguard world, I was a lifeguard for a long time. If I don't pass the swim test, I'm not a lifeguard anymore. You know, if you don't pass your EM, EMT research, you can't pass CPR, which, I mean, obviously everyone can pass that, but you can't be a, an EMT or a paramedic anymore. It's no different. You're just asking someone to reach th the minimum standard, which is the CPAP, which is an extremely easy, you know, passable test. So I think that's it. The fat shaming is completely, you know, the, the wrong way of going about it. And that's not something I've never done. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible thing to do. But you have to say, okay, here's, here's the end point. Now let's break it down incrementally. But you do need to be there in two years and give people the time to get back to where they need to be. 
And I think to circle back to how we started this conversation too, was, you know, we talk about environment and how we can set people up for success. Three months ago, my husband says to me, he's like, and he's always, my husband has never been bulky by any far cry, but he is now working a desk job for Cummins and he's he's feeling the effects he's always had that farm kid strong we talked about you know how could you how can you you know not be in good shape if you're on a farm he's always had that kind of strength but his day-to-day day job became sedentary and you know he was feeling the effects of it he was carrying some extra weight and he's like can you design a meal plan for me absolutely i can i'm i'm happy to awesome cool but i'm gonna hold you accountable that's one environmental factor and i'm gonna help you i want to set you up for success so we cleaned out you know, and got rid of all of the convenience stuff. And it was like, okay, so, so we meal prep and now you eat out of these containers and he's down 41 pounds now. I mean, he's like setting people up for success, I think is a big part of that too, where, as we talked about on the job, we, we have lots of things that factor in that contribute to that obesity statistic, you know, the lack of sleep and restfulness, um, shift work, uh, not being able to um, prepare or eat, you know, a meal that's nutritious versus one that's convenient. And we've, you know, we got to, if you're in a busy house, then you're going to be out the door anyways. Um, so I think it almost has to be like a holistic thing. Like you said, the East coast, the the standard is 24 on 72 off. Well, you know, where I work, it's 24 on 48 off. And you're, you're just getting, you're just, when that second wave comes over of having to go back to work, you're, you're still kind of like, eh, not really on the uh, up and up yet. So I think having to address it both from the environmental standard too, and like you said, breaking it down and then setting, hey, here's the bar. And this is where you need to be in two years time to get there. You know, there's, there's, there's other, there's other moving parts too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's when, you know, like a wellness program comes in. And again, it can be completely expandable. I just got a, um, a, a couple of guys on from Beaver Fit and they, you know, a lot of the, the issues that I hear in the fire service and they're, you know, in somewhat justifiable, like some stations just don't have room for a gym, you know, and some of the equipment, you know, I understand couldn't be in the bay, it used to rust, used to fall apart. Well, now there's companies out there that literally roll out a box and then you are, open the box and it builds into a squat rack and a pull-up bar and you know their stuff literally can sit on a ship of you know a naval warship so their stuff's built to to last so a lot of the the old school you know reasons why people couldn't work out it really are solutions for those too and if your budget's low buy a sandbag and a sled you right know, or an old tire on a pallet you know there's no also great yeah so so i think that's it but cr- Understanding as well the long-term benefits of having a healthier fire department financially. And we talked about the corporate world. You're, you're projecting 10 years ahead. You're going to save hand over fist if you create a healthy work population. If you go to 2472, the mental health, the physical health, I mean, all these things would improve dramatically and you would save so much money over and above what it costs to put in that, that D shift. So, right. you know, but again, if you have that budget year mentality, you're not going to do it. If you have that forward thinking corporate mentality, then, you know, you're going to understand that in five, 10 years, you're going to pay, it's going to pay dividends. And, and now your, your city or your county are actually going to, going to save money year after year after year on top of the humanistic element that your people are not going to get sick, hurt and die. 
I would also suggest instead of punishing people who can't come into that standard in a in a specific time frame, this is just my humanistic aspect of it and how, you know, you kind of thread around, you know, well, you know, this person, they're they're really knowledgeable in this, this, and this. Maybe they can't get past this at this point in their life. I I don't know. But my I'm not saying that that isn't acceptable or, you know, is acceptable. But at the same time, what if instead of punishing people, we incentivized people? So, yeah. So what would that look like? Cause I'm, I've seen my last department, God, they gave out Amazon gift cards and all of using their Fitbits and everything. And it literally got to the point where, you know, guys with, I think one guy wore, wore his Fitbit on his motorbike and it gave him like 50,000 steps because of the vibrations and everything. So, I mean, I, to me, the incentive is you want to be a firefighter, you know, and, and again, I'm all about setting people up for success. But what for I mean, that that's that's the view I've seen with incentives. What would your version of that look like? So this is this is not my my particular version. I, I'm borrowing this from someone who came before me. Um, we had a firefighter on a department very passionate about fitness and set up our fit for fire program in that if you work out on duty, 80% of your shifts, you get an extra paid vacation day. Um, I, there are people on our department, myself included, who utilize that. It's it's fantastic. I'm going to work out anyways. I And now, you know, there's other people that are like, hey, I like my time off. I'll, I'll put in the, the hours in the gym, whether they're walking on the treadmill or they're just getting active. So I think that those, those, those programs are effective too, if they're utilized and supported. But, you know, making sure that you know, there's a standard is good too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a great idea. And if, if that's something offered, then fantastic. But you still have to question if you need days off to justify you being prepared for your job, you know, then where's, where's the mindset, you know, but I'm just playing devil's advocate now. But I mean, anything to, here's, here's the thing, that incentive program that I saw in my last place definitely got people who weren't moving as much moving more. I'll give you, I'll give right. you that. But, you know, right. I, Again, you know, do the Navy SEALs need an extra paid date off to to get them to work out? <laughs> yeah, probably not. But um, even even corporate world, you know, we had incentives for hitting certain biometrics. If you went in and you got your blood pressure tested and it was down a certain amount from you know that annual exam a year before, you you received um, so much off of your healthcare premium insurance. You know, like I think that those are all. Because long term, like you said, long term. So is that is that costing the corporation money upfront? Yes, but long term, you have healthier employees who are more productive, who are taking less sick days. Mm -hmm. Well, and also, I mean, I, I like I like the idea. Of, yeah, exactly. And I like the idea of paid leave. I, I hate the idea of sick days. You know, if it's days we just need to take a day off, and I don't think you have to justify it and pretend to be sick. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's. Um, uh, oh, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought then. Uh, anyway, it's okay. I'll, uh, I'll cut that bit out. Um, well, I want to touch on just one more concept and then we'll go to some closing questions. I know I've been chatting for almost two hours now. Um, we Before we hit record, we hit on the word diversity. And I loved you know, what you're talking about. It's something that I've mentioned a lot here. Um, so talk to me about you know, that word in our profession and, you know, the, the kind of diversity you think that we need to see in a crew, a station, et cetera. 
you know, when we were talking, I said that I don't, I don't particularly like the word. I don't, I don't think that it's useful or helpful right now because it's become such a buzzword. We use it so frequently. Um, and the other buzzword that comes with it is like, you know, changing the culture. Like, does anybody really know what, what that means? What is the target for that? It keeps moving. What is the thing that we're trying to gather today? Are we trying to gain more ethnic diversity? Are we trying to gain more um, diversity men, women? Are we trying to gain more uh, diversity as far as if people are, um, you know, what their sexual preference is? Like, what, what does diversity mean today? It changes. It's a moving target. I don't like it. I think that what we need to start looking at, and I come from a corporate world where they were aggressive about putting people on teams that that were not all monosyllabic names, you know, Mike, Matt, Mark, that were all, you know, grew up in the same area, had the same experiences, their, their dads worked in the same place. The corporate world was aggressive in getting people who did not have the same background at all, did not have the same experiences at all and putting them on teams to solve problems. Because in the fire service, we talked about this, we are not going to fires like we used to, okay? We, stuff doesn't burn like it used to. We are essentially getting called to solve people's problems. We are professional problem solvers, that's what we do. And we're having to go solve someone's problem. So do you want the same four, you know, four people that have very similar experiences and backgrounds working together to try to solve that problem. That's great if you want them all to agree with each other, but problem solving is best and most efficiently done when you have people with conflicting experiences that say, oh, you know, no, I don't think that would work because this happened to me. And when this happened, X, Y, Z, you know, it, we don't we don't have that we don't have a good glimpse of that in the fire service most of the people who are there come from a fire service background either that their their father did it or parented it and um, now they're doing it and that's all they've known or public service has always been in their background or that they that's all they know they started off in maybe a private ems career or whatever and now they're into the fire service but they've essentially been always in that job um that that's that's my experience on my department that, that, that might not be you know i'm not speaking for for everywhere but i think that when it comes to diversity when we talk about diversity we need to stop being so narrow-minded and saying that we need x amount of you know people that look this way or that way and it needs to come more from our experiences our diverse experiences and um not only our upbringing, but maybe, you know, like, like I said, I'm a late bloomer to the fire service. I didn't start my career job in the fire service till I was in my thirties. So I've got 30 years of experience, you know, and that's almost 15 years of, you know, different career backgrounds that I've done, none of which had to do with fire service. But I do feel like when it comes to solving problems, I dip into my backstory knowledge basically all the time. And if you have everybody with the same backstory, you're not getting that efficient and, you know, really robust team. Yeah, well, it's an interesting perspective. And obviously, this is why I love these conversations. So you're in, you know, rural Wisconsin, you know, I'm originally from England. And actually, my my Anaheim crew, I was from England, my firefighter partner was from South Africa. My uh, captain was a salty old ginger from California. And then my other, my engineer was um, Mexican-American. I mean, he was born in the States. So we had a very diverse background culturally, but, but you know, experience-wise. Like Dickie was, uh, you know, a lifeguard 
you know, in, in you know, did helicopter rescues out in South Africa and you know, Terry had built houses his whole life, you know, so they, it was exactly what you're talking about. And that worked so well. And I think, as you mentioned, the word diversity, if we, if we want to have a spectrum of personalities and skills on the fire service, that's why it's so important to have, you know, men, women, you know, gay, straight, black, white, whatever, because that represents the community and it's not checking boxes. You know, that's not, oh, does your puzzle piece fit through that hole in the, in the, in the toy? It's, you know, in going into all these areas, as we said, the mentorship programs are amazing and getting people from all backgrounds and all shapes and sizes. But again, within the parameters that we have to be able to do this job. And I think that's, that's where it gets great. Well, we want to have all these people. So let's lower the bar so we can get more women. What a, what a slap in the face to every woman, you know, phenom that's out there that's crushing it in the fire service. You know, no, that's not how you do it. You, you know, if you're not representing one area then you go in that community and you mentor young men, women to, to create great police officers, firefighters, you know, whatever you're looking for. But yeah, I agree completely. The, if we truly had the kind of good old boy, you know, white Irish, <laughs> yeah, you know, then you're going to get a very, very narrow community. But this, this globe is full of some amazing human beings that are incredible responders all over the planet. Yeah, Anaheim sounds like it's very progressive because that that would be like a that would be a fantastic composition of diversity on a team. Um, I think that the Midwest, as I said, I think that we're still we're still getting there. I, I think that I think that we're we're doing better, but um, I think that there's certainly room for improvement. And I think mentorship programs are going to be essential to do that. I am, I am absolutely, as I've said before, um, or hopefully alluded to before, I don't think that the standard should not be lower for anyone, anyone, you still have to do the job. Um, I also find that kind of like people, and you know, I, I obviously, I have, I have friends who are not firefighters because of my, my past upbringing. A lot of my friends are normies or, <laughs> you know, not public service people. And, you know, they, they were just astounded, like, well, you, your test was different, right? Because, you know, you're not going to do the test that he would do, you know, and point to a, you know, 220 pound guy. I'm like, uh, no, like it's a standard. It's the CPAD is a standard. I'm going to do the same test as everybody else. And, um, because they're not sending me to fight the female fires. Like I'm, I'm there to fight all the fires. I got to be able to, you know, do the job regardless. Um, oh, okay. That makes sense. You know? And, uh, I think the way that we get people to stand up to the line or get up to the line is that we go in there and like you said, mentorship programs and, and bringing the people that are interested in it up to that line, giving them a hand up, helping them to get there. But like you said, you can do everything. I can lay down programming for you. I can, I can help you with nutrition and meal plans, but I can't do the work for you. And that's where the ownership comes in. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I had um, Steffi Cohen on. I'm assuming you know who that is. Female world champion powerlifter. I mean, yeah, what, what she moves, I, I, I know I would never be able to move the weight that she moves. And she's, imagine this, a woman. So this whole facade of, oh, women aren't strong enough. You're so wrong. You know, again, so as long as, as long as, like you said, we're able to, to operate between those levels that we need to in the fire service. You know, if you're a phenom, you know, world champ and powerlifter, fantastic. You're going to be an asset. If you're a triathlete that's strong enough to do the job, fantastic. You're going to be an asset. You know, if you're 
a tennis player, whatever it is, as long as you can do it, because there's no pink ladders or blue ladders. You know, they're just right. ladders. <laughs> they don't care, you know, what's dangling between your legs or not. They just want to make sure that gets up to that window and, and gets the family out. So, yeah, I agree 100%. Well, I would love to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. And uh, i got to go watch football play. I mean, England play football in a couple of hours too. <laughs> um, so the first question I'd love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Oh, man, I am a reader. I like to read a lot. I've, I got a, a list from actually Mark Von Oppen. He's been on your on your podcast as well. And uh, somebody I consider a great mentor. He gave me a reading list and everything I read off of there was good. It's, it's your ship by um, Abershoff, I think is the last name. It's your ship was a really good one when it came to leadership. Um, Leaders eat last was a really good one too. I recently finished a book called chatter that a coworker recommended to me. Um, and it was fantastic. It's like turning your inner crit, turning your inner voice from critic to coach, which I think is, was awesome. Um, and the book that I'm reading right now that I'm super into, and I know everybody's like, Oh, got to do the audio book, but I'm reading green lights by Matthew McConaughey. And that's, <laughs> I cannot put it down. It's really good. Excellent. Yeah. I've got that sitting in my audio book library. I haven't got to it yet, but I think, I mean, he seems to be doing quite a few podcasts or, I don't know when he's going to be filming next, but I want to listen to it so I can see if I can get him on the show, but we'll see. The way he verbalizes taking, um, you know, bad experiences and turning them into something that kind of like was like a crucible that made him is just, it spoke to me. I mean, I, I read it. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is fan- fantastic. Brilliant. All right. Well, speaking of actors, what about movies or documentaries? Any of those that you love? There is the one documentary that I watched and I was like, oh my gosh, when, when, after I watched it, that's like when I I was in firefighter too. And I was like, wow, it's, I think burn the, the Mm -hmm. year on the front lines of of Detroit, that that's really good. Um, The perfect human diet, which I think can be found on Amazon. That's a really, really informative one that like, I don't think that you should get your, your nutrition knowledge off of anything that you watch, but like it it it's it simplifies some things and has some good good metaphors. Um, I really, as far as an actor, I am a big fan of Robert Duvall. Like, I am not the person that has live laugh love on my woman cave walls. I have a picture of Robert Duvall when he was in um, Apocalypse Now, and one when he was in uh, Days of Thunder. Like, I just I, I admire Robert Duvall. Um, so yeah, that would probably. Probably about it. Brilliant. I haven't had that one before, but he's a great <laughs> I, actor. I love him too. I, I just like him. I don't know. It's his charisma. He's just like, I don't know, in Apocalypse Now when they say he was the guy that was going to go through the war without ever having a scratch on him. Like, I was just like, yeah, I like that. <laughs> so with that being said, I mentioned, you know, with loving to, loving to try and get Matthew McConaughey one day. Is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Val Solano would be awesome. She she is 
just this phenomenal human being that um, I was put in contact with and probably my first like female mentor, which is awesome because I don't have that. And she's all from all the way out in Colorado. So we got networked together through another mutual friend who was like, hey, I know this female firefighter. She really needs some direction. And we became really good friends. Um, she came out to uh, the East Coast to hear me speak at my first big speaking um, gig that I got out there and um, she she's phenomenal. Another one, and you might have had her on before, I'm not sure, but Jenny Grima, Grima, I'm, I might not be saying her last name right. She's from she's from Florida. And I met her when I was speaking for the first time out out on the East Coast. I met her for the first time out there. She was there. Um, her husband to be was doing a speech, the the senior senior firefighter um, teaching from the back step basically was, you know, his, his topic. And she, she lit in on this, this, this tangent about like cancer and firefighters and carcinogens. And she did this over dinner. And I was just like, I like looked at her. I'm like, okay, next time you get up and you speak and you say this because it was so interesting. It was so informative. And like, I think that people who can speak like that sincerely have a gift and I just like I was just it's not a topic that you want to sit and listen to right cancer like I'm I've, I've heard cancer so much but like Jenny starts talking about it and you're like I'm stopping everything I'm doing and listening to her because she's so like charismatic and she puts she's phenomenal she's wonderful she's awesome um I hope one day my 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 hope is to speak at FDIC and I hope that her and I and Val and Aaron and all of them can get together and just have a meeting of the minds and sit down on a round table discussion and just chat because I think that would be so phenomenal. Beautiful. Yeah, I actually met her at the Orlando Fire Conference this year. Okay. So we will she, be doing one. Great. Yeah. Yeah. You so, will, okay, you are great. Yes. I will certainly listen to that. I just she and she's a badass too. Her both her and Val, like you want to talk about alpha firefighter chicks, those two are far head and shoulders above anything I'm doing. Like they just they're they know their shit. They I don't want to say they're salty because they're not. They're super compassionate people. They're they're kind and good and good spirited and good natured and they care about women and they care about all firefighters, but they are just passionate about their craft and I could sit, I, I just wish I could just sit and listen to them some days, which is great. I, I usually get on the phone with Val here and there every so often. Jenny, I kind of keep up with on social media, but she's just, she, man, they're both just, they're kick-ass humans. You can't go wrong if you'd have either of those on. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to do the one with Jenny face-to-face because we're in the same state anyway. So we'll we'll make yeah. that happen. So I think, awesome. I think Aaron initially uh, suggested her too. So there we go. Yeah. He, he, he got me to get you both of you on. <laughs> <laughs> He's he's an excellent champion of um you know women in the fire service. I think he's a great mentor as well. Again, I he is literally the catalyst that got me to be like, oh, I'm gonna pursue this thing for a living. So um and then he actually was the the person holding the door open for me to speak um publicly at the New England Fools Conference. So I was the um I opened for that. This was right, I mean, it was like we came in right under the COVID line. It was in March of 2020 so like and then right after everything was shut down it was incredible like it was like the last hoorah and then stuff was shut down <laughs> good timing there beautiful yeah no he's he's an amazing man a firefighter's chief and just a, an incredible Gosh. human good human absolutely all right well then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you what do you do to decompress i go to the gym <laughs> um that is that is my ah oh, that is my sanctity and my salvation Um, I tell you that the gym that I go to is 22 miles from home here and 
on my all of my off duty days is when I go there. And when I go and it is it is an old school bodybuilding powerlifting gym. So cement floors, it's like a warehouse style. And I wouldn't have it any other way. It's called Iron House. Uh, Joey Van Meter had a dream of owning a gym and he started up and I am just so grateful to have that place. And I'll tell you this, like the cool thing. I know when people say, oh, I went to the gym and no one was there. Like it still means that there were people there, you know, it just wasn't busy. When I go, there is no one there. I am there lifting alone, <laughs> which is kind of a nice way to decompress, especially after a long shift. Um, so I'll often do it, do it then. Now today I'll go probably right after we get off the phone call, I'll go eat a meal and I'll go, go lift. And there might be a few people there, but it is, it is um, the place that I go to feel alive. And um, it's where I go to work on myself. And it's where I go to, you know, basically everybody has their coping mechanisms and that's mine. Beautiful. I meant to, to touch on that when you said before how far away it was. I put off jujitsu for a while because in town here, I just didn't find the right fit for me. And I used to train coming off shift down in Orlando. So that was my gym for a long time. But then when I transitioned out, I just wasn't there anymore. So now I travel, I think it's 30, 35 miles door to door multiple times a week to go do that. So again, that's another very easy excuse for us. Like, ah, you know, there's nowhere in my area. Well, that just means you have to get in the car and drive. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, but other than that, you can find me um, on social media at miss underscore fit underscore hose dragger. Um, I don't usually use Facebook. I don't have chat Snapchat. I, I feel like we have all of these ways to communicate, but um, I kind of try to pick one, stay in one lane, one bucket. I think that social media has good things. Um, I I hope that it can inspire others. The 451F link is like kind of my project, and that's just the concept of being better than you were yesterday. If you reach out to me, I'll send you a little chain link that has 451F inscribed on it, send you a sticker. It's just a visual reminder to be better than you were yesterday. And um, that's kind of like been, I'm trying to get as many people on board with that, you know, our fire service just being a little bit better than yesterday. Beautiful. Now for people listening that wanted to prepare for the CPAT, how do they access that? Um, I think that finding a mentor is your first thing. So, you know, getting getting into a group, um, if anybody reaches out to me, I'm happy to put them into in touch with resources that can help them. Um, basically getting up and doing the work. If the, the, the simplest way you can do it, the simplest way that I would tell people is to get a vest, whether you, you borrow one, you buy one, get a vest that you can put at least 75 pounds in and train in that thing every day leading up to it. Train in that thing until you can go on the stair climber for 20 minutes at CPAT pace without touching the sides. Because if you can do that, then you're going to probably walk through the test. You know, it's but you got to build that. And if you're, if you're not used to, to doing that, it can be a real shocker. Absolutely. Yeah. It's this, the, the baby deer legs that gets most people when they come off that thing, if they haven't trained. Well, Brooke, I want to say thank you. It's been an awesome conversation. Um, you know, you've got a very different perspective geographically coming from, you know, the, the fitness journey that you were on. And I love the fact that you're holding the bar equally as high in the fire service. It's funny because as you entered, as you mentioned, you were the weak link and now you forged yourself into one of the strongest links. So uh, I thank you so much for being so generous. We talked for over two hours today. Um, and yeah, thank you. I certainly appreciate your time. Thanks, James.